0: Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayer for attention to Romans chapter 6, the ch- chapter that we read in your the three Bibles. The Bibles that you've got have come in, that's page 1048. 1048. Romans chapter 6, and reading for our text, Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. All of us here are sinners, and so what we have in this word of our text, which is a beautiful promise, not an exhortation, not a direction, but a beautiful promise from the Lord, sin shall not have dominion over you, should be of a concern for us each, that we are the characters to whom this promise is made. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Romans, is very, very methodical in how he sets forth the truth of God. Each chapter unfolds some new aspect of the truth and the way of salvation. He begins in chapter 1, of setting forth how men, even that do not have the word of God, Without excuse in believing in God because of themselves, because of how we are made. We are made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. And when we see creation and see how beautifully uh, everything works together, then God says that that shows forth my work, it shows that there is a creator, there is one who made us and this is then set before us as a reason why we should believe in a God that made the heavens and the earth, made us and formed all things. And then there's an opening up of what sin is. Sin is a transgression of the law of God. Our first parents sinned in Adam and Eve in disobeying God, in rebelling against God. The Lord said, In the day that thou eatest thereof of the forbidden fruit, thou shalt surely die. And as Eve and Adam listened to Satan, rebelled against God, then they sinned. Death entered into the world, death spiritually first, so that they lost their communion with God, they lost their ability to know the things of God, and death literally. And so man must die, because we are under the sentence of death. And the Apostle then He sets forth, well, why was the law of God given? And he tells us that the law was given so that sin does appear sin. Where there is not a law, sin is not imputed. If our lawmakers in this land want to be able to bring people to court or to uh, lock them up for crimes, they've got to have a law stating what that crime is and to clearly show that they've broken that law, and then the law also must prescribe what is the sentence against that law. And so this is why the law of God is given, why it was given on Moses at Mount Sinai, not that we should obtain salvation, not that we should get to heaven by the deeds of the law, or by obeying that law, we've already broken it, we're already under the sentence of death but it is a means of bringing the whole world in guilty before God. It is vital that we realise that we are sinners, we are born in sin, shapen in iniquity, sin works in us and about us, and eventually we shall die because we are sinners, and then after death, the judgment, and we must stand before God's judgment throne. And so the Apostle Paul sets forth that that is the purpose and reason that all the world might be brought in guilty before God. So then, in chapters 4 and 5, he sets forth how it is that a man can be justified. How can a man be saved? How can he be made right with God and be delivered from the sentence of death? And he sets it forth as it is justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, made truly man, truly God, and by his sufferings and by his death, fulfilling the law and making it honourable, bearing the sins of his people, that he brought in an everlasting righteousness for them that believe. It is the Lord's work that puts away the sin of his people. He hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the way that we are saved is through faith in Christ and it is through the grace of God, the free unmerited favour of God, quickening us into divine life, passing by us and bidding us live and giving us firstly to know we are sinners and then to showing how that he has suffered in our place and removed the sentence and condemnation due to sin. And so that is the lead up to the chapter where our text is because the Apostle then, in each time, he is anticipating a reaction from those that he's writing to when they're told that, by the deeds of the law, no man can be justified or accounted free from guilt. Their reaction is, well, how can we then be saved? How can a man be saved? So then he tells them. And then when he has told them that it is by grace you saved through faith and not of yourselves, then he poses another question that people might say, if it is by God's grace that we are saved and not by our works, then why don't we just still keep on sinning? Why don't we just live as we please? Just continue in that way because that's not how we are saved. It doesn't matter. So that is what he addresses in Romans chapter 6. And he uh, says in, the, in answer to this question, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And throughout this chapter is the argument as to why God's dear people, why they should live holy, godly lives and not desire or even want at all to live in a way of sin. Now, after dealing with that in this chapter, he then deals with another possible thought because he thinks, well, God's people are then going to think, well, there is sin still working in me. I'm still troubled with it. I still wrestle with it. How can I really be a child of God with this conflict that is going on within, these struggles with sin? So in chapter 7, he explains about how it was with him, how when the law came and all his righteousnesses vanished and he became in his own eyes then a sinner, not a Pharisee. And then he explains what happens in his own case. He says that the law is spiritual, I am carnal, sold unto sin. And he says, The good that I would not, the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? He says, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And so then he gives the, real conflict that is going on in the lives of God's dear people between sin and what they want to do, what they want to be in Christ, and what they find in their own evil heart. And he gives the answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And so when we come then to the text and the passage before us, we have a before and after conversion look at what sin is. Before conversion we break the law of God, and it doesn't trouble us. Maybe it does because of our upbringing, but we do not really resist it or struggle against it. Sin has dominion over us. It just pushes us to whatever our own hearts want to do. The Word of God says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? that we go forth from the womb speaking lies, we are full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, and yet by nature we do not feel it, we do not know it. I remember questioning my own mother of our hymn in our hymn book, hymn 76, At peace with hell, with God at war, in sin's dark maze they wander far. I remember saying to her, the hymn writers got that wrong. We should not. That should be at peace with God, with hell at war, not the, not the other way around. But I didn't know my own heart. I didn't know how averse to holiness and the things of God my heart was. And it was only when the Lord called me, quickened me, opened my eyes to see my sin, then then I realised and knew that what the Bible says about sin and says about our own hearts is true and that I was a sinner. And so before conversion, sin is in us and we go along with it. after conversion, sin is still in us. But it is not to have dominion over us. We are delivered from the dominion of sin. That sin. It does not have its sway, it does not have its recourse without resistance. And the resistance is with the authority and promise of Almighty God that hath called us. Have some example, and those of you who know the Word of God and you think of the book of Esther when Haman first was able to get the king. Ahasuerus to make a decree that the Jews would all be slain on a certain day. And the Jews were in great distress and great sorrow because there from the king was a decree of death. And that decree could not be changed. The law of the Medes and Persians, that could not be changed. But then we have the intercession of Esther, we have the decree not taken away, but another decree made, that the Jews then, with the authority of the king, could resist the enemies coming against them. They could fight. They were still going to have the enemies come. They were still going to be under that threat. But now they had the authority of the king so that they could fight for their lives. And then we read, even before that day came, even before they had dominion over their enemies, that there was joy and gladness with the Jews because they had the king's authority to fight. And that is the same in the Gospel. It's like from the same king, there is first a sentence of death, and then from the same king, because of what Christ has done, there is the decree of, allowing the people of God or charging the people of God to resist the devil and with the promise he shall flee from you. And that authority from God makes all the difference. And so in this chapter, the Apostle then is speaking of how we that know the law, who know the Lord, should react and should deal with sin in our members and in our lives. I want to look briefly at three points. Firstly, the promise to all believers sin shall not have dominion over you. And secondly, the reason is in our called state. Our text says, For ye are not under the law, but under grace. And thirdly, the obedient walk by grace that is the means of the promise being fulfilled. But firstly, the promise to believers. As we said at the beginning, this is a beautiful promise, and may nothing take from it, for the people of God sin shall not have dominion over you. If the Lord has made us tender in his fear then our prayer will be like, dear Jabez, that the Lord would keep us from sin, keep us from evil, that it do not grieve us. And we might think, shouldn't that be put, do not grieve the Lord? But it is put in the way, do not grieve me. And it's a, a blessed token for good when sin grieves us. It grieves us that we are sinners. It grieves us that in our thoughts, our affections, our uh, oftener, by sin defiled, they carry us away. Uh, Sin rises uncalled for, unlooked for. We can have something that comes up before us and pride will rise up. We don't have to consciously call it forth. Something injustice and and anger will rise up. We don't have to think, am I going to be angry over this or not? It comes up, might even be a news item we hear on the news. And it suddenly stirs up in us, real anger. And the the old nature comes up of revenge and uh, hatred. And the, the, the old nature, it only needs the right circumstances and it flares up, it comes up. One of the Puritans, he said, to impress upon a new believer that he is called to a daily conflict with the corruptions of his own heart. That we're not to think that the path is to be an easy path, a path where we don't have any opposition from a fallen nature. But here we have this beautiful promise to those who, when they would do good, evil is present with them. To those who do know they have the opposition and the sin within, sin shall not have dominion over you. You won't go back to what you once were. You won't go back to being serving sin. You won't cast away all of your faith and the things of God and go back to being under its dominion again. You are delivered from that dominion. This is then a beautiful promise and it has a foundation to it and the foundation is in our Lord Jesus Christ and what was done at Calvary. You know when we spoke of the book of Esther Then before that decree went out that they could fight for their lives, there was many things that were done. Sin and those that were bringing that sentence had to be dealt with. Haman had to be dealt with. There had to be those things that were done and much prayer was put up. And we know that God could, by his great power, Uh, just dispense with death, with sin. But it would not be just, it would not be holy, it would not be righteous. And so if there is to be a promise that sin shall not have dominion over us, it must be on a basis. There must be a warrant for that. And that warrant is at Calvary. The first promise that was given in the Garden of Eden was that uh, there was the promise of the seed of the woman that should bruise the serpent's head. Thou shalt bruise his heel, he shall bruise thine hand. The Lord Jesus Christ should come for sin and be condemned, be made a sacrifice for sin. He should obey the law. He should fulfil the law. He should supply the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. He should make atonement. He should redeem the people of God. And that is what is the underlying cause for such a promise. You know, if we were to make a promise to someone and say to them that, Uh, we would give them certain things, then we'd have to have something backing it up. We'd either have to have an ability to do it, we'd have to have money to do it, we'd have to have the occasion to do it. And so we read in the Word that all the promises of God, including this one, are in the Lord Jesus Christ, yea and amen, in Jesus Christ, And so this promise is founded there too in what our Lord has accomplished at Calvary. And may we view every promise in the word of God to Calvary. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of mine hand. The promise that he has promised us, even eternal life, those promises that he has promised his people beyond the grave, but here is a promise this side of the grave and it is a promise to those who still feel sin within them, who are walking the path that God has appointed for his dear people this side of the grave while they're still in a body of death, while they're still compassed with infirmity, while they're still in the world but, by the grace of God not of the world they are given a promise that is designed for their help to walk here below to the Lord's honour and glory this people have I formed for myself they shall show forth my praise sinless perfection we deny man is not free of sin here below But this chapter describes the walk and the following one as well. How we are to walk in the bodies that we have. We have a most glorious prospect as we think of this promise relating not just to through this life, but when it comes to death. Sin shall not have dominion over you. We think of The Apostle Paul, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We think of Stephen when he was dying, looking up and seeing the Lord standing at the right hand of God and testifying of it. Death, no more death to die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. The sting of death taken away and instead being made a way that this mortal shall put on immortality, this corruption put on incorruption, that there be a bring to the Lord, Father, I will that they whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. And the Lord changing that curse into a blessing, like in Esther's day, the sentence still there. The enemy still rising up, but it's turned into a blessing. Like with Balaam comes to curse the people of God, but it's turned into a blessing. Like with the sacrifice and sufferings and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the wickedness, the sin, Satan's hour, and yet turned into the greatest blessing, the redemption of all the people of God. At that time, I lay down my life for the sheep. This commandment have I received in my Father. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. So may, when we read the promises of God, may we view why they can be given, the basis of them, and especially with the people of God, it is for them he has suffered, for them he has died, them he has risen again. So I promise to believers sin in an unbeliever has dominion over them. But with those that are believers, the promise is it shall not have dominion over them. I want to look then, secondly, at the reason. The reason is in our called state. Our text says, For ye are not under the law, but under grace. This is a description of those that are saved by God's grace. Paul says to the Ephesians, By grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of, of God, When Paul writes to the Galatians, he says that the law is our schoolmaster unto Christ. In Romans 7, the following chapter, he says, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. The first step, as it were, of a soul being quickened into life is to die first, is to be shown their sin. Nebuchadnezzar, when he had a dream, and he knew he had a dream but he couldn't remember the dream, he asked his wise men to tell him what the dream was. And he says that, show me the dream and... I will know that you can tell me the interpretation thereof. He accused his wise men of preparing really lies to tell him. If he told them the dream, they'd just make up the interpretation. But the principle is a very good principle, especially applied to grace. Because Daniel, he was able, through God, revealing to him, he was able to tell both sides. He was able to tell the dream and tell the interpretation. And in the way of grace, you show me a person that God has convinced of sin and shown them their sin, shown them the malady, shown them what they are in need of and that the sentence of death that they're under. And it is the same God that convinces of sin that gives life to know that they are dead in the first place, is the one that will give the remedy to sin and deliverance from it. It is God's work both, and it's vital to remember that. When the Lord first worked in my heart and gave me spiritual life, it was some four years before I was baptised, and it was so many months before the Lord first blessed me, But the first was to open my eyes, to see myself as a sinner. And wherever I went in the word of God, it was, even in the gospels, it condemned me. It brought me in as guilty, as if the Lord shut up the gospel. I couldn't see it, couldn't see it in the Bible. All I saw was everything to condemn me. And then the time came that the Lord turned that around. And even in the law, I saw the gospel. Even at Mount Sinai, I saw in the unbroken tables that fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, and is a vital thing that we be brought as sinners first. Sinners can say, and none but they, how precious is the Saviour, and that's not just a realization at the beginning of the way; it is known afterwards as well. Paul, when he writes in chapter 5, he says, Then God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he says, When we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And he's telling them in chapter 5 that if while we were yet strangers to the Lord and while we were in sin the Lord passed by us and bid us live, how much more being justified or by being quickened and made alive shall we be saved through his life? And it is only really God's people that know what sin really is and for their comfort, for their help, They are the ones that need a very clear view of how that sin is dealt with in Christ and how though they remain as sinners, that it will not have dominion over them. And the reason here is the called state of God's children. They are not under the law. Yes, we still have regard to the law. There's a curse on everyone that turneth away his ears from hearing the law, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. And if we are to walk in this chapter 6, then we are to know what sin is. But we're not under it as a condemning law. We're not under it doing and obeying it with the thought that we shall obtain life by it or acceptance with God by it. You might have two people, and they both do the same deed. One is doing it with the thought that it shall be a bargaining tool to get them to heaven, to make God pleased with them. The other one is doing it out of gratitude to the Lord for what he has done for them at Calvary, and with no thought whatsoever that there is any merit in it. In fact, realising That even in what they are doing, there's sin mixed with it. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so it's vital that our called state, that we realise this, that we are not under the law as a condemning law. And you might say, how do we know you're not under the law? Is because when the Lord passes by and gives life to His dear people, it is life that makes known that malady and delivers from the condemning of the law. The law of God then becomes schoolmaster; it becomes that which is used by the Lord for the good of His people. That law that He Himself suffered under, bled and died, that He fulfilled they now see the law as he saw it. They see it in its holiness. And now also that which they have received is by God's grace. The Lord freely imparting to his people the blessings and benefits of his death. And it is vital to realise that state, the different state of the people of God. Everything is freely given to a child of God. Their life from the dead, their hope of heaven, the grace to bear infirmities and weaknesses and trials, the grace to walk in the ways of the Lord, a hearing ear, an obedient spirit, the hunger and thirst after righteousness a desire after God, a love to God. All of those blessings come from the Lord, not from law, Lord, not from ourselves. Every blessing comes to us through Jesus' precious blood. And so the reason for this promise is our called state. And that's why the promise is not given, cannot be given, to those are still under the law because the law aggravates and it stirs up sin as the Apostle describes in the following chapter. It makes us as a hard taskmaster to labour with no relief and no help and in slavish fear of condemnation and judgment to come and never having peace at all. But the Lord Jesus Christ has come to completely pay the debt, completely set his people free. And so in going through this life, there's that realisation that the Son of God has already set free at Calvary, has already paid the debt, And this is why the promise then can be given, is given. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. And by the law is the knowledge of sin, but through grace is the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered, bled and died for the sins of his people. I want to notice, lastly, the obedient walk by grace that is the means to the promise being fulfilled. And before we look at the, the context here, just to notice, just to think of the means, how the promises were fulfilled in the Old Testament. The Lord gave promise to Abraham that in thee and in thy seed shall all nations be blessed. That is, not seeds as many, but one which is Christ, in Christ. And Abraham saw, said Christ, my day, and rejoiced at him. He also gave promise that his seed, as in the, uh, his descendants, that they should be a stranger in a strange land, that they should be afflicted four hundred years, And in the fourth generation be brought forth and into this place. He gave them the promise of Canaan. Might say then, how were those promises actually fulfilled? Means were were used. It was a miracle that Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Vital for this promise to be fulfilled that they did, that they did. And then... When Isaac is to have a wife and the servant is sent to, to get a wife the very clear direction of God in leading him to the house of his master's brethren and to Rebekah uh, then Bethuel and Laban they say the thing proceedeth from the Lord and yet there were means Abraham's servant went there and there were means of course of prayer how Abraham's servant made such a matter of prayer as to those that were coming out to the well at that time and that God would show whom he had appointed for his master's son. He knew there was an appointment, there was a wife and he was directed to where that wife was. Then we think of how was it that that promise to Abraham about his seed being a stranger in a strange land, how would that be fulfilled? And we see the life of Joseph and how they came then into Egypt. Then how are they to be brought out of Egypt. And then we have the life of Moses and all the things that happened, the decisions by his parents, the acts by faith what happened with Pharaoh, what happened in the backside of the desert. And those things are happening and the promises are being fulfilled. The Lord then uses means. We go to Calvary, the greatest promise of all. How was that fulfilled? Ye have taken and by wicked hands crucified and slain. Him that was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The Romans were used. The enmity of the Jews were used. These things were the means. It didn't excuse sin. It didn't excuse the way they were acting. But we notice the means that the Lord uses, especially in bringing to, for, to pass the promises that he makes and so here as well there are means to the promise in verse 11 we are told concerning our Lord Jesus Christ our Lord is set before us in the verses before how that he died how that he rose again died unto sin once but in that he liveth he liveth unto God likewise reckon ye Yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that is the first means that is mentioned here A, a reckoning, a reckoning that we are dead to sin, that sin, we don't hear it, we don't listen. If someone is dead, that they can't hear, they can't know something cannot come upon them at all. And so with the people of God here, it is a, a reckoning to be dead unto sin. Then in verse 12, we are told, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. And you see, the people of God, you might say they still have this choice, whether they sin or not, whether they sin that grace might abound. And the word of God instructs them, exhorts them how they are to act in this. Paul, he says, I keep under my body, lest when I preach to others that I be cast away. Our Lord, uh, he suffered for sins, And we have Paul setting him forth in Hebrews 12, to consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And then he says this, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And the idea that the people of God should be so blessed That they don't have any striving, any conflict with sin is is not upheld in the Word of God. They have a constant, wearisome battle. We have in Ephesians the weapons of our warfare that are not carnal, but are spiritual, mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And so what is exhorted here is rather than just a sinning that grace might abound, a a resisting, a mortifying through the spirit, the deeds of the body, and not letting that reign. You say, but the promise is, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why is there the exhortation, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body? And we find the authority from God, the promise of God, is joined with the exhortations of the word. Without that, if we were doing it in our own strength, we'd have no power or might at all. But with the Lord, then we have that strength. Resist the devil. By what power are we to resist the devil? But then we have the promise, and he shall flee from you. And there's that authority, there's that power that is with it, that gives the reason why these things can be set before the people of God. In verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of righteousness unto sin. And uh, if we think of our members, our hands, our feet, our eyes, uh, and how in unregeneracy we think of the Apostle Paul. He used all his body, to hail men and women to prison, everyone who called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after conversion, he certainly wasn't using his hands, his feet, his mouth, his energy to condemn them, but to edify them and to support them and strengthen them and to preach to them. And he was using his body in a very, very different way. And that is what he is before us here the grace of God makes a real change in a person. And in that change, there's really a daily evidence of the life of God within. And so then we have the remainder of this chapter from verse 16 right through to to the end of 22 of the picture of a servant Uh, Know ye not, in verse 16, to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Really the whole chapter is a real encouraging for the people of God to walk in obedience to the Lord. In the midst of real opposition from a deceitful, evil heart, sin within, a tempting devil without. And you say, But my poor obedience, sin is mixed with everything. Well, he shows in the next chapter on that. But what a blessed thing to be desirous to serve the Lord. This people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise, his servants shall serve him and we are to mindful of whom we serve sin is a constant adversary for the people of God but we are to be directed constantly to Christ, to Calvary, to his precious promises and to blessings that flow to us through his precious blood Some will think, well, as long as we are saved by the Lord to go to heaven, is not that enough? But if we are truly called, that beautiful name given our Lord, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, will be very much related to this life, that we might be saved from our sins and walk in sweet fellowship with the Lord and with his people and be helped to fight that good fight of faith and lay hold upon eternal life. Well, may this promise be sweet to us, especially those who know what it is, to know the hell within, the sin within, and to know the need of the authority of heaven to fight against that evil sin and to seek that which is pure and holy from above. May we be truly his servants and by his voice and all his will esteem. The Lord add his blessing. Amen.